0: This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Lydia Millett, author of 12 books of fiction for adults and four young adult novels. She has been a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize and a Guggenheim Fellow. Her most recent book is a short story collection called Fight No More. All the stories in this book explore the idea of home and are unified by a singular character, Nina, who is a lonely real estate broker in Los Angeles. We began the interview talking about her writer's voice and if the voice in her book, Fight No More, is a reflection of who she is in the world or something she reserves for the artistic creation of her fiction. I know
1: people who know me have told me that they can, they can kind of feel my my personal individual presence in some books more strongly than in others. So I imagine that um, there's kind of a spectrum. I have had a lot of books now. This, this is probably my 12th uh, sort of literary fiction book. And so there's a lot of variation there. You know, I've been writing for, you know, my first book was published about a quarter century ago now. So that's a lot of time. And so, you know, you change over that period. Everyone does and I think that's probably reflected sort of the – I hope it is because, you know, you want to get better and um, you want to grow up and uh, improve yourself along the way, you know. You always want to write a better book next time. So, yeah, I think think there's a lot of me in there. I don't tend to write – or haven't usually in the past written sort of directly from life very much. So it's not really literally any kind of personal journey that I'm describing in my books that I've made, you know? But I think the voice is the thing most distinctive to me rather than sort of the events or particular characters' stories or anything like that.
0: Were there a series of things that you were thinking about when you started this collection? I mean, these series are linked. They're linked by this woman, Nina, who is a real estate agent, they are all take place in California, but there's sort of a cast of characters that reappear. Well, you know,
1: it's funny, where I started is sort of not where I ended up, in that um, I wanted to write, actually, about something a little loftier than rich people's houses uh, at first, (laughs) which was... um, sort of cultural appropriation and how sort of, well, not appropriation in the sense that we now use it often with regard to like identity politics or anything. But I kind of wanted to talk about how in each of these stories do do a little um, work on how things that are uh, rebel culture and avant-garde culture and that are really shocking when they first are made, get incorporated into the sort of consumer mainstream. That's kind of what I was starting from. And and i wanted these these you know wealthy homes to be kind of a place where we could see this happening but then i sort of moved away from that and just became interested in the in the characters um who knew each other in this kind of small interconnected world of um people selling and buying homes in la really just one realtor and a lot of clients and so yeah i moved away from that original kind of nugget and i became sort of interested in uh, you know, the home is a place where the self gets displayed and where also um, the blind spots of, of people can be seen, sort of, you know, looking at how, how houses reflect people in ways that they want and ways that they don't want, and how by stepping into their, into their houses we can know so much about people. You know, I became just interested in the sort of, sort of almost um, voyeuristic quality of, of going into people's homes.
0: Well, it's a sacred thing, too. We see people who, who don't want to sell their homes, people whose homes are <laughs> taken over by yeah. strange beings who are helping them <laughs> fix it. And, you know, it's interesting the ways that our home are part of our identity and our sense of self.
1: Right, exactly. Yeah. I mean, there's sort of like, you know, intimate maps of our personhood. They, they've got all these different, different spaces in them that are devoted to different parts of ourselves, right? Like sort of the caretaking of ourselves. They have places that are private, they have places that are public, places where those two kinds of spaces meet. You know, There are things in people's homes that you're not supposed to touch, and we all kind of agree when you go into someone's home that you're not supposed to, say, open the drawers beside their bed or, <laughs> or things like that. And then other places where the whole point is to be social and to uh, share space and, and touch things. You know, and, and so homes are kind of these... I don't know. They're snapshots of of people's um, you know, the taboos that people have and and um, secrets people have, I guess.
0: When you think about the relationship between real estate agent and buyer and seller, this person is tasked with selling probably the most important thing in their lives that they're not, you know, selling a grapefruit. They're selling a place where they will make memories. And you know, as much as you can know your client or a buyer, it all starts out you all start out as strangers and so I got that sense in your first story called libertines where we first meet Nina and she's convinced that these people who have come are maybe like uh an African dictator and his 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 lackeys and then it turns out at the end that he's a musician how did you sort of come up with this thought and what do you what what was on your mind for Nina's character to be thinking that
1: well, you know, I actually, so I had a pretty good friend who sort of advised me a little bit in this book. He was a real estate agent. She's older. She's a, She w- w- is the mother of an old boyfriend of mine. And when uh, I was with that guy, I used to go around to, to homes with her and I'd go to her open houses and we'd help out. And, and I just, she'd show me, she'd show me homes that she was particularly intrigued by and everything. So I had a little exposure to kind of that job through her and also just as a client, right? When I've when I've looked for places to buy in New York, say, and you, you 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 get in this strange position where where you're entering you're sort of you're sanctioned in going into people's homes, people you don't know and who don't know you and and you can sort of you have this kind of permission from the culture to to you know, to really just pry into their homes because you might buy them right so it 's just commercial transaction, but it 's also um, a, a kind of really delicate personal trespass in a way when you're you 're going into these homes and so I kind of like the idea that um, that realtors they have that permission for themselves and they also have it for for the people that they're taking around in these houses and things can go wrong and things can be awkward. And it just seems like a great place to play some of that out in these fictions, you know, and Nina starts out sort of with these, you know, basically racist presuppositions that she has about these particular clients because she, she makes snap judgments about people. And then she ends up, um, you know, having, of course, to completely revise to sort of trash her assumptions about them, and, in fact, you know falls in love with with one of the people um, who's in that house that she's making these these crazy assumptions about, and um, yeah, and becomes devoted to him. and so you sort of start with her on this kind of superficial, even kind of vexed kind of level where she's where she is making outlandish. Um, decisions about the people she's dealing with. And then you sort of, as the book goes on, you know, go deeper into that and past it. And and um, she gets more complicated and and sort of uh, actually more wise, but also very sad.
0: I think the stories, uh, you know, as we progress, get much more emotionally complicated and with so many more things going on as we move. So, So the next story called Breakfast at Tiffany's Probably contain some of my favorite characters that we revisit again. We have a, a young teenager named Jeremy whose parents are divorced, and his big house in L.A. has to get sold. And as some sort of maybe backlash against it, and and the only maybe maybe he feels impotent in some way to everything coming around. Uh, to his house being sold, his father leaving, his mom not having enough money to keep it. His world is crumbling. So within the impotence yeah. that he feels, when the first people come to tour his home, he decides to masturbate so they can walk in on him doing that. Can you just talk about this story? Um, so so
1: actually it was just sort of inspired by that um, you know Sid Vicious cover of the Frank Sinatra song that he quotes a lot in the story that he somewhat quotes in the story, but uh, you know Sid Vicious's cover of My Way, and I just was listening to that song and thought, you know, what kid might possibly be listening to this song, and what story could we tell about a kid listening to this song? <laughs> so it started with that Frank Sinatra and vicious connection, and uh, and also you know what what I was saying earlier about this notion that things start out as um, you know this, this sort of the avant-garde sort of, of of something like the Sex Pistols, and it just gets. You know he gets kind of debased and sort of assimilated into the culture over time as something completely non-threatening to the status quo so so there was that level too, but mostly i just I just took this this teenager listening to this song and spun a story out of that, yeah, and I thought, you know he just wants to be obnoxious, he just wants to be obnoxious, and he's he's angry and um and, how can I play with that and uh, amuse myself? And so, yeah, he makes a mess in his room and and <laughs> times it so that the the clients are particularly horrified. Um, yeah, and then but then you see you see other sides of him as the book goes on, his his uh, his sort of dedication to his mother, his respect for his mother, uh, his of course, extreme dislike of his father, you see. <laughs> um, and you see really why he dislikes his father as well, because we see his father from from other people's points of view as well, his, uh, his grandmother's point of view, for instance. Um, yeah, so there, and then, yeah, and then you sort of see his, how kind he can be to people as well. So he was really, uh, he was one of my favorite characters too. I like to, I like it when you start out with someone sort of in an extreme position and then you enter their daily life and their sort of normal life gradually and, and they no longer seem so extreme even though his behavior remains bad, <laughs> you know in a way,
0: yeah, I mean he was he was kind of in some ways he was this know it all kid he but he he didn't know it all. He would revert to these Latin phrases that he learned at school, which seemed to maybe fill in in a place in his brain where he couldn't fill in his own thoughts and he in some ways, he's very confrontational with life. He, In both negative and positive ways, he wants to get in there. He wants to masturbate. But he, he does have these soft spots. He can't quite, I don't think, get to a space of dominance. And and in this story where we first meet him breakfast at Tiffany's, one of my favorite lines is after he comes out of the room and confronts the, the realtor and the people looking at the house, one of the men who is looking at the house has this little very tiny speech for him. And he says, you know, you think we're all assholes. You won't hear this. I'll still say it. Hating's easier. Couldn't be easier. It's just a default setting. The easy way out is the rest that's actually hard. And this line really struck me because it is, it's sort of like the most base feeling that you can go to without going to more complicated places. And I'm just Mm -hmm. wondering if you could talk about writing this line and what you were thinking about. Yeah, so
1: when I was younger, uh, in my 20s, for example, I, and, and my, the friends that I sort of hung out with, and we all sort of defined ourselves by what we didn't like. You know, we, it was sort of what we didn't like, say, in art or music or, or books that kind of made us feel powerful, I guess, gave us a feeling of agency, you know. Um, and then later, uh, in my 30s and beyond, it's, it's no longer about what you don't like. It's really about what you love, you know, and the the project is to love or or like at least as many things as you can in the world. It's, if you go around sort of um, looking for things to hate, you probably won't end up um, with a lot of pleasures in your life, right? And also, you may turn bitter and uh, jaded and ornery. So, so I think there's this real kind of learning curve in. And it can, you know, it can come at different times for different people. And actually, a teenage boy, I think, would be really lucky to, um, to come to that kind of realization. <laughs> I think it's usually a little bit later on because you're pretty busy hating, um, uh, you know, uh, as a teenager in various ways or reacting against things anyway, just reacting, reacting, reacting. But really, when you can, when you, at least for me in my life, when I, when I realized that, It felt a lot better to to try to love things than try to hate them. It was kind of a turning point.
0: Has that ever happened to you with your writing, either as maybe as you were growing as a writer and reading other stuff, maybe it was easy to look at other stuff and be like, oh, that wasn't good, and not being able to see what was good about it?
1: Well, that's exactly right. And um, it did happen, and it happened with one particular book that I was going to read you a passage from. Um, because I sort of, this was around, I was right around 30, and um, and this particular book that I wrote, which was my third book only, um, just kind of changed who I was to a degree. It it, it didn't change my character because that's a tough thing, but but it kind of changed um, it kind of changed my affect in life. You know, before then, I I liked to sort of. Um, you know, I liked to judge, and I still do judge. You have to judge to go through life, especially if you're making stuff. But um, after that, I liked first to give everyone the benefit of the doubt, and writing that book sort of did that for me and, and made me, um, I don't know, it just made me less closed off, and it really did change me in this particular passage I wanted to read you is from, from the end of it. Um, and. It was kind of in writing this really generous character. The book is called My Happy Life, and it's about um, this woman who just endures terrible torments and, and really lives in a, in a marginalized um, world, and she she really just goes through all sorts of hell in her life. But she... She kind of loves everyone, uh, even those who mistreat her, and she has this just infinite kind of generosity. And of course, it's not always; it doesn't end end well. Uh, always, you know. Um, she ends up. The, the sort of framework of the book is that she's writing the story of her life, on the walls of this room where she's been. She's been actually forgotten in this now derelict um, mental hospital, essentially, and so she's locked into this room and and writing her life on the walls, which um, seems, you know. Very grim, and and there are a lot of grim circumstances in the book, but she's she's never grim. And so the whole gesture of the book is this sort of gesture of of generosity around, you know, what if you saw only the good in the people you encountered? Where would that put you? How would you live? And so that book is kind of about that. and And I found that in writing it, I, I sort of turned more towards generosity and away from from judgment. So it's interesting you asked that.
0: So in your story, The Men, you have this woman, Delia, her husband leaves her, and she has these little men that come and just do work around her house, and they fix things, and at first it's really helpful, and then they sort of cross the line and start fixing things that she doesn't want. There's an analogy for Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, and... There are these little people and not other people don't really witness them, and then they become bigger towards the end of the story. I'm just wondering if you can talk about this story. It reminded me a little bit of a paradigm for a relationship. Maybe it starts off with the man helping in positive ways and then sort of taking over and you lose your identity and you go crazy. I- I'm just wondering about your perspective about this story. It was a little bit surreal.
1: Yeah, it is. It's sort of different from the other stories in that way, right? Because you don't know whether it's delusion on her part, or is there some like absurdist fantasy element, right? (laughs) Sort of confusing, you know, to locate yourself in the space of the story within this book. But I kept it in because I felt that in other ways it fit. And she also sort of meshes with, with, you know, her her story meshes a bit with, with other people's. So, yeah, I mean, I wanted there to be um, uncertainty around exactly, exactly what was going on here and, and of course, yeah, it is sort of allegorical or something or metaphorical the way the little men all of a sudden grow and shoot up. First they're the size of dachshunds and then they're the size of standard poodles all of a sudden, you know. And of course it is like written written partly for um for humor. But also, yeah, you know, this, this woman who's been abandoned uh, by her husband, um, first first is sort of Comforted and um, by these 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 handymen who appear and don't even ask for payment in her house, and then um they yeah they become more and more sort of invasive, they sort of take over her personal space in ways that make her uncomfortable until finally they're frightening um and and they're the size of regular regular men or something is how she puts it. I can't remember exactly what the phrasing was, but yeah, full size, you know, something like that. And so, yeah, it sh- should be seen probably as some kind of parallel to, to how her marriage played out, sort of the size of the, the sort of emotional or sort of um, symbolic size of the husband's selfishness and, um, and how we share a space and, um, and yeah, things of that nature.
0: There's a few themes that did go through many of your stories, and I guess one of the ones that stood out to me was men leaving women. Can you talk Mm. about that? Well, you know, there's this
1: kind of problem in the culture of of absentee fathers, more than absentee mothers, I mean, by a large margin. So so part of that is just sort of reflecting, I think, um, how things are. Uh, Although I'm not sure – I'm not sure – what the stats are on families with children versus couples that don't have children and getting divorces and stuff. But for, you know, for families with children, more often, if there's a missing parent, that parent is a father, right? So I was looking, I did want to look at fathers and children a bit in this book and absentee fathers and children Um, and bad fathers, you know, too. But there, there, you know, there are some really, really good parents too in the book, you know, who sort of give everything up, or who, who really, um, you know, who have a lot of love for their children? The um, Jeremy's mother is, is a very devoted to him, and um, you know, so so so, I think mostly, um, the men in the book, uh, not the boys, but a lot of the men are. Um, the ones who are fathers are, are troubled fathers. You know, there's this. Of course, there's Lynn, who's um, becomes Nina's boyfriend, and he's a real he's a kind of lovely person, um, but he's not he's not a father. And then there's his bandmate, who also is this, who's a very depressed and um, socially anxious person, but also a, a good person with a lot of integrity and you know, sort of longing and stuff. So there are sort of there are kindly treated men in the book, but not that many kindly treated fathers.
0: Yeah, I I was thinking about Lynn when you were looking for a good example. I mean he had siblings, he was very good to them. He was so he um, was in the first story where where at first Nina thought he was part of the entourage of the African dictator and turned out to be, you know, part of this musician trio of friends. And Mm -hmm. He, the title story, Fight No More, is really about him. It's Lynn dies. And we see sort of the fallout and the sadness for Nina and the people around him. And I'm I'm just curious, not not only about this story, which I'd love for you to talk about a little bit, but also why this became the title story.
1: I will fight no more forever is the famous line attributed to Chief Joseph of the Nez Perce. Uh, made that surrender speech, this um, very beautiful and sad surrender speech um, when when uh, when his his tribe was defeated, um, and I think you know eighteen seventy seven or thereabouts and and so that's from his speech, which some claim was actually written by someone else or something. but so that's what that line is from it's a surrender it's a surrender speech. and so I kind of wanted that for the title. Uh, And a lot of the titles of the actual stories are appropriated as well. They're just bits of pop culture, right, like Breakfast at Tiffany's. Um, Libertines is from the Marquis de Sade, whose book, 120 Days of Sodom, is featured in the first story. So all of them are kind of bits of pop culture or high culture. Um, Most of the titles aren't my own, and Fight No More is just a fragment, too, of someone else's language.
0: Well, there's so much, you know, love and compassion and deep empathy in these characters. Is it important for you to also illustrate the unexpected love that can happen in life?
1: I think that just kind of comes bubbling up in text, you know, in narratives, if you're writing about as soon as you have more than one character, um, there's going to be either at some point conflict or affection. (laughs) There's going to be and maybe and usually both. And so that's just a thing that can't help happening if you keep writing through people's days, you know, made-up people writing their days. Those things occur as soon as you introduce, yeah, as soon as you introduce, introduce an other, right? So there's one person and then there's the other. And, yeah, you just, you end up there. I, I, I'm prone to feel sudden kind of, just it'll come over you all of a sudden, some feeling of fondness or longing it's I guess the nature of emotion that you can't plan for it always it just kind of surfaces and it I think does so in these stories as well.
0: Can you read a passage from an author that influenced you as a writer?
1: So yeah I I think I'm actually going to read some poetry and I'll read a pretty famous poem by Dylan Thomas whom I liked a lot Um, He sort of appealed to me as a teenager and as a young person, um, his sort of drama and his longing and, um, and his romantic qualities. So I'm going to read a poem that kind of influenced me called And Death Shall Have No Dominion. And death shall have no dominion. Dead men naked, they shall be one with the man in the wind and the west moon. When their bones are picked clean and the clean bones gone, they shall have stars at elbow and foot. Though they go mad, they shall be sane. Though they sink through the sea, they shall rise again. Though lovers be lost, love shall not, and death shall have no dominion. And death shall have no dominion. Under the windings of the sea, they lying long, shall not die windily. Twisting on racks when sinews give way, strapped to a wheel, yet they shall not break. Faith in their hands shall snap in two, and the unicorn evils run them through. Split all ends up, they shan't crack, and death shall have no dominion. And death shall have no dominion. No more may gulls cry at their ears or waves break loud on the seashores. Where blue a flower may a flower no more lift its head to the blows of the rain. Though they be mad and dead as nails, heads of the characters hammer through daisies. Break in the sun till the sun breaks down and death shall have no dominion.
0: And do you want to say anything else about that?
1: I think what I'd say about it is that when I read this when I was really young, probably in high school, um, it was the first thing that I'd seen that kind of suggested to me that you could write against death and write against your own dying, and, and that was a really nice, selfish, romantic notion to have <laughs> at that age. And I've always, I've always kind of written from there that, um, that you feel most alive when you remember your own mortality. And This is fairly basic stuff, but it's, I think profoundly true <laughs> that you sort of, you're, you're most alive when you're aware that you won't always be and that you should write from that place.
0: Can you read a passage from something you wrote that maybe was tricky or hard to write or change from the first draft?
1: Sure. So, you know, um, we were talking earlier about my book, My Happy Life, that I wrote that sort of changed the way that I approached other people and the world and and even writing. Um, And so I thought I'd read just a really brief couple of paragraphs from the very end of that book. And this is a scene in which this poor woman who's been abandoned in this locked room, she's been trying to kind of, she doesn't really have any tools, but she's been trying to sort of break through the walls and break out of her room for a long time. because she doesn't have anything to eat and she needs to get out. So this is sort of the the end of the book. For instance, now, since I've been alone so long, I remember affection, and then I think I may only have dreamed. But I've seen all the forms of dreams before me, and that is quite enough. I always have been fortunate, and now I'm still happier than I've been before. Because while I'm insisting, even now, banging away in the dark stupidly, I can see all the lovely forms, and anyway, as I do what I have to, a vanished person comes to me and whispers, you do not have to wish to be forever, because we all are here, he says, and it is warm, and look at that, look at them all passing and moving in their quick moments of not being gone, and the wind blowing on the wild fields, but you and I have always known about the walls, and we have known the walls are clear as water, and one day they will ripple and tremble, and slide down and down and away into the center of the earth. And he whispers, We are in the dream because we had it. We have dreamed it and known. And so, he says, We do not have to stay here anymore because the dream goes on and on without us.
0: Do you want to say anything else? Just that
1: writing this passage was difficult because it needed to be abstract and it needed to be sad, but also to I wanted to sort of... Mix the joyful with, uh, with the very sad. And so it was kind of learning to, um, to try to have that delicate situation where you can have a kind of rapture and a kind of grief at the same time.
0: Where do you write?
1: I write opportunistically wherever I am, mostly in my own house, various parts of my house, just with a laptop on my lap. I sometimes write in public places. I like to write in coffee shops and bars, especially bars. I have to limit that because, you know, you have to drink when you're in bars. So it could get out of hand. But um, I really do like writing in bars and coffee shops sort of with this dull roar of conversation around me uh, but nothing too intrusive. You know, if someone's having big fight. A couple's having a big fight at the next table. That doesn't, that doesn't really work. But just, I do like some background conversation as I write sometimes. So when I can do that, I do. But mostly I just have to write sort of migrating around my house during my work day.
0: And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing?
1: I have to admit usually to um, TV shows. <laughs> That's usually where I go. And it's sort of my, uh, I think it's probably my biggest advice, watching stuff.
0: Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I just have two
1: people. I really have two readers right now. Um, my my friend, Jenny O'Phil, who's, uh, who's a, an excellent writer, uh, she wrote a book most recently called Department of Speculation. Anyway, she's my my first reader usually. And then my agent, Maria, is usually my second reader, um, Maria Massey. She's been my agent for, for about 25 years now. Um, And I really trust her. And I just have the two of them, really, to look over sort of the first draft before it goes to my editor, Tom at Norton. So that's really all I have. I don't have a large group of readers.
0: How have you dealt with rejection?
1: I've been fortunate to, to not have to wait. You know, it was published first when I was really young. And so rejection comes in little dribs and drabs. It hasn't sort of plagued me or anything, you know. Um, short stories will be sent to the New Yorker, and they'll reject them, of course, because that's what they do. Um, and that doesn't particularly bother me. It's sort of water off a duck's back. Some people care more about that stuff than I do. Um, then recently, there was a sort of a whole book that I wrote that I still like more than some of my published books, but it wasn't. It hasn't been published. I don't know if it will be published. But I really, I'm really quite. You know still quite pleased with it <laughs> so so that's an odd feeling just um you know doubting your own level of awareness of your work because other people seem to find a particular thing you've made less entrancing than you do but essentially um you know i just kind of, when things do happen that i don't like in in the career part of my work i just kind of soldier on and and, and more or less tune it out
0: and what is your favorite word
1: Oh, that is such a good question, and I used to always say, I used to have an answer for it, uh, and it was poignant, but that is no longer my favorite word. <laughs> I like that word because it was kind of ridiculous and also um, pitiful at the same time. Like, it just it just is. A, but it's a, kind of an ugly word. It's not, a, it's not sonorous, you know. So now I would say I don't have a favorite word at all and that I like simple, elegant, sparse words like air and wind and water, you know, I like sort of elemental language. Those are my favorite words now, but there's not, a, there's not a one that's, that's ascendant over the others.
0: You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Lydia Millet, author of 12 books of fiction for adults and four young adult novels. Her most recent book is a short story collection called Fight No More. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft to dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.